Welcome to Orphan Entertainment, the podcast dedicated to public domain and abandoned media. I'm your host, Christopher, and as usual, the co-host that is dead sexy on arrival, Lydia. Easy. (laughs) (laughs) You'll get that in a minute, guys. (laughs) Yeah, you will. You might. Welcome. Thank you very much for joining me, Lydia. we got a fun film to talk about tonight. Absolutely. I want to thank our listeners for joining us once again, and just remind everybody that if you want to subscribe to the Orphan Entertainment Podcast, you can do through you can do so through iTunes, uh, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play, and of course any uh, podcatcher that you have. Our RSS feed can be found at orphanentertainment.com. You can join our Facebook group. Just go to facebook.com and search for Orphan Entertainment. And, of course, subscribe to our YouTube page where you can find many of the films that we've covered here on the podcast. And you'll usually get an idea of what we're going to cover because I like to try to post that movie uh, at least a few weeks, two or three weeks before we actually discuss it. Or before at least before the episode airs where we do discuss discuss it. So if you don't want any spoilers or anything because we do get a little spoiler in our synopsis, (laughs) it's a good place to to go. And, uh, you know, that won't happen. Now, any feedback or anything, if you want to say anything, you want to tell us how we're doing or you want to comment about any of the films that you've seen or any of our shows where we've discussed them, you can send those to orphanentertainment at gmail.com. With that, we're going to play a five-minute mystery, and then within that is going to be a promo for another fine podcast. And when we get back, we're going to talk about 1950s DOA. Another five-minute mystery. with your husband in the army. And why not, Inspector? Women are no weaklings. I can run this garage as good as any man now. Yeah, the next thing you know, the women will be taking over the police departments. Yeah, just a minute. Hello, George's garage. My George speaking. Huh? Yeah, sure, I can handle it. Sure, sure, be right over. Someone broken down? Worse than that, Inspector. A car just went over that 70-foot cliff at the Globe Tunnel. The Globe Tunnel? Hey, that must be some wreck. I'll follow you out in my car, Molly. This might prove interesting. Inspector, I've never been so scared in my life. My brother Lester was driving the car, and he he didn't get out. Hey, how about you men giving me some help here so I can get this car towed off the road? Right with you, Molly. Why don't you get in the tow truck here and pull forward, slow-like? I'll do it. Okay. Now, engine forward. Uh, just a minute, Mills, until I release the emergency brake on this wreck. Oh, no, it's not the emergency brake. The gear shifts in reverse. Yeah. Okay. There you are, Mrs. George. How did your brother happen to run off this cliff, Mills? We were having a little argument, Inspector, and Lester didn't see the curve until too late. Must have been going pretty fast. Well, we were going about 50 miles an hour. Lester yanked back on the emergency brake hard, but it didn't do any good. The brake must have been defective. There's no skid marks. Oh, I've got no faith in emergency brakes. Never use them. If Lester hadn't taken so much time with his, he could have jumped, too. 
Then you jumped from this speeding car and didn't get hurt? It was a miracle. When I saw Lester had lost control, I opened my door and jumped. The car ran along the edge of the embankment for about 20 feet and then fell over. It rolled and bounced down over those rocks. Oh. Yes, I can see the tracks here along the edge of the cliff. Sure, I'll see you later with a coroner. If Lester hadn't trusted his brakes so much, he'd be here now. But no, the poor devil never even had a chance. I'll say he didn't have a chance. Not when you, Mr. Mills, had murdered him. Were you as fast as the inspector in seeing through Mills' story? We'll see in a moment, but first... What the hell is this, the wonderful Billy Flynn? Just some podcast that's supposed to be geeky, podcasting's Rich Sigfrid. Did you try it? I'm not going to try it. You try it. Screw that noise. I'm not going to try it. Hey, Flinstress, let's get Mikey. Do you mean critically acclaimed comedy rock star Mikey Mason, who hosts the Beer Power Time Machine podcast? Yeah, but he won't listen. He hates everything. Hi, I'm critically acclaimed comedy rock star Mikey Mason. I don't often listen to podcasts, but when I do, make mine Geek Radio Daily. Hey, hey, hey man, that, that's a different promo. Between love and madness lies Geek Radio Daily. That's kind of accurate. There are some things money can't buy. GRD is free online. Maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's Geek Radio Daily. Eh, we'll take it. Geek Radio Daily. All the geek without the weight. GeekRadioDaily.com now, back to the story and its unusual solution. Mills, the slip you made and the slip that'll send you to the lethal chamber was your habit of always parking a car in gear because of your fear of emergency brakes not holding. You'll remember I had to take your car out of reverse before it could be towed. Yet no one had been in the car since the accident. Mills, you killed your brother earlier, drove here to the cliff, parked the car on the edge just enough to make it off balance. Then to make sure the car didn't move until you were clear of it, you put the car in reverse, got out, Wobbled the car until it toppled over the embankment. That reasoning is stupid. It was stupid of you, Mills, to forget that a car can't speed forward with the gears in reverse. DOA is an American production from the short-lived Cardinal Pictures, which was run by Leo Popkin. It was directed by Rudolph Mati, I believe is how you say that. Mm -hmm. Is that how you say it when you had the little accent on the E? I would call it, I would say Mate. Mate? Mm -hmm. All right, Rudolph Mate. Mate was born in what is now Poland and worked as a cameraman and cinematographer in Hungary, Austria, Germany, France, and the United Kingdom before finally moving to Hollywood. Uh, not surprising, in the late 30s, early 40s, uh, he being a, uh, effectively a Polish Jew, he, was, uh, he had good reason to leave Germany, or leave the area, I guess. Mm -hmm. He kept with the trade as cinematographer throughout the 30s and most of the 40s and turned to directing in 1947. Uh, one uh, film that jumped out at me, he directed one of my favorite sci-fi films, When Worlds Collide, in 1951. Interesting. He worked up until his death in 1964. 
And the two I picked up, he um, photographed Love Affair, which is the original version of An Affair to Remember, which I actually Ooh, watched the other day. I think I he watched was the, cinematographer on yeah, that? Yeah, he was. And that was kind of a fluke thing. Um, and then he was the director of photography for the movie Gilda, which anybody who's seen Shawshank Redemption is probably familiar with. Very good. The star of the film is Edmund O'Brien. He was not a name or face that I was familiar with, uh, but he was a fairly prolific character actor through the 40s and into the 70s. But he was also an Academy Award winner for 1954's Barefoot Contessa, uh, Best Supporting Actor. Good movie. Yes, was the Oscar for that. Mm -hmm. And he was nominated again in 1964 for Seven Days in May. A few other notable appearances. He was the... uh, in The Hunchback of Notre Dame in 1939. He appeared in 1984. The film 1984, <laughs> not in the year 1984. And he was uh, the man in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance in 61 and The Wild Bunch in 1969. So really uh, interesting kind of uh, spread of uh, types of films and everything the man showed mm-hmm. up in. Now, a young O'Brien supposedly put on magic. Now, this is reported from, you know, things I found online, so take it all with a grain of salt. (laughs) He supposedly put on magic shows for children in his neighborhood with uh, coaching from a neighbor, Harry Houdini. What? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He performed under the title uh, Nearbo the Great. Uh, Nearbo being O'Brien spelled backwards. Oh. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, I'm looking at it on the screen. Oh, that is Nearbo Brian's ball backwards. <laughs> yeah. An aunt of his uh, started taking him to the theater at an early age, and that's where he developed an interest in acting. After attending Fordham University, he went to Neighborhood Playhouse School of Theater in New York, and his theater work was noticed by Pandro Berman at RKO, who offered him a role as the romantic lead. Uh, romantic lead Oh, and I don't know how to say his name. In Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, Gringois? Gring, gr- Greenwall? I don't know how to say the name. I'm terrible with that. It's French. Hold on. Let me find it. <laughs> G-R-I-N-G-O-I-R-E. Gringoire. Uh, Gringoire. There you go. Well, RKO signed him on a long-term project, or a long-term, long-term um, what's that word? Contract. And he worked with them until 1943 when he joined the armed service. In 1948, O'Brien returned to Hollywood, this time with Warner Brothers, who he worked with for about two years. During that time, 3,147 members of the Young Women's League of America voted that O'Brien had more, quote-unquote, male magnetism than any other man in America today. (laughs) It's basically the sexiest man alive. Yes, exactly. They go on with the quote, all women adore ruggedness, said organization President Shirley Connolly. The truth is true. (laughs) Edmund Edmund O'Brien's magnetic appearance and personality must fully stir women's imaginative impulses. We're all agreed that he has more male magnetism than any of the 60 million men in the United States today. High praise. No kidding. I'm so sorry. I have to admit, I'm a little, when I was reading some of the stuff, I was a little surprised because he kind of, and well, I guess this is as good a time as any to come to uh, mention just when I started watching him, I'm thinking, well, this seems like a poor man's Humphrey Bogart. He kind of does. Um, yeah. I. He doesn't, he doesn't, 
He isn't similar to Humphrey Bogart, but he, I could see how he would remind you of him. In fact, I was mm-hmm. confused at the beginning because I thought he was a private detective. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll get into that maybe towards the end where we're kind of giving her some of our final final thoughts and everything. Uh, he left uh, Warner Brothers and not tied to any studio. He signed up for DOA. He would also appear in the film Seven uh, Eleven Ocean Drive the same year, uh, 1950. But after that work, he uh, or after that work started drying up a little. According to TCM, in the early 1950s, O'Brien started struggling with his weight, which would change significantly between films. He had no problems if that relegated him to character roles, but for a few years, it was hard to come by anything really first rate. He was far from out, however, and found plenty of that character work. He did some radio and eventually moved over to television. He worked steadily throughout the 60s and 70s until issues with his memory began to surface. His last film would be 1974's 99 and 44% Dead, and soon after which he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, unfortunately, and then he passed away in 1985. And uh, rather sad, Alzheimer's is always a sad... uh, sad death to hear from anybody uh the stories and the things that i saw online his last decade of life was not a happy one for his uh for his family which is a real shame because he obviously you know he had a really strong really great career he seemed to really enjoy working and it's unfortunate that something like alzheimer's uh took his life Mm -hmm. well on that happy note (laughs) i guess we'll move on into the synopsis here of doa credits roll as we watch a man walk through long hallways. We learn that this is a uh, police station. It must be one of those kind of where a police station is in City Hall, because I can't imagine the actual police (laughs) station just having halls like this. He reaches the homicide division and asks to see the man in charge. He's led into the captain's office and says he wants to report a murder. His own. Upon hearing this, and where it supposedly took place, the captain digs up some a missing persons report. Mr. Frank Bigelow has been found. This is, this is such a great start. <laughs> um, you know, he walks in and he says, I want to report a murder. And they say, who? And he says, me. <laughs> You know, yes. and, and it's kind of what you, you know, somebody was sitting around a writing table and they go, ooh, what if we did this? You know, and it's yeah, such no this kidding. great, catchy intro. And it's kind of one of these things, too, where I wonder, you know, 1950, how much of the story was released in publications or whatever before someone would go to the theater. I mean, how many people sat down to the theater knowing nothing about this movie? Oh, there's a new Edmund O'Brien film. Let's go see it. And then that opening. Mm -hmm. I mean, that would be one of those things where you sit there and go, whoa, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and, you know, aside from the film clips that they would have, that essentially the trailers and other movies, it's entirely possible people would walk into this and know nothing about it. Yeah, I, I, I'm almost sorry that I kind of read a synopsis to know what it was about because that would have been just a really great experience to just sit there and not know anything about the film. And I want to report a, mor- a murder. Uh, whose murder? <laughs> My own. This what? Is, what? This is exactly <laughs> why I don't watch trailers anymore. <laughs> it's true. I never watch trailers, especially if I know I want to see the movie. <laughs> and it's for this very reason, you know, watching that and him saying that actually caught me. Up until then, it was kind of like, oh, another film noir. But oh, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You have my attention. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, Frank begins to tell his story, and so uh, most of what we see from now on is flashback. Frank works as an accountant in Brandon, California. 
Uh, we see him at work helping a uh, beautician with her parlor's taxes. Frank starts packing up for the day as he's about to start a vacation. A week in San Francisco. His secretary says that she wants to go with him. Turns out Paula here is more than just the secretary. She's his girl, or she is his girlfriend. And Paula's not too pleased about him taking this trip by himself. I want to go with you, Frank. Now, Paula, I'm just going on a little vacation, you know that. You want to go without me, don't you? Be gone just a week. And I suppose you've just made up your mind to take this little vacation at 9 o'clock this morning? Uh, no, Paula, I meant to tell you about it a few days ago. I guess I forgot. Oh, you forgot. Paula, don't be like that. Don't be like what? You just drop a little announcement that you're going away. Not tomorrow or next week or next month, but today. No explanations, nothing. And I'm supposed to swallow the excuse that you need a little vacation. I just want to get away from town for a few days, that's all. Get away from this town or get away from me. Oh, Paula, please try to understand. How can you ask me to understand anything like this? No, I'm sorry, but I don't understand. Go to San Francisco, but don't expect me to be waiting for you when you get back. I think you, you notice pretty much right away as he's helping this beautician, you know, uh, she's a very attractive woman, and she's like sitting on the desk, and they're, she's looking over his shoulder. And the whole time Paula's going in and out of the office, she's like giving her the eye. <laughs> so you kind of you know something's going on with Paula before she even opens her mouth. Mm -hmm. And he's not exactly um, offended by the hairstylist <laughs> actions. No, not offended, but he's also <laughs> he's a, not. He's he's he, uh, very friendly, not flirty, but friendly about it. Sure. Well, he, she's, you know, one of his clients, and I, that's about it. Well, after listening to Paula uh, slam a few drawers in the other room, uh, Frank goes in to try and smooth things over. With a few soft words and a dabbing of Paula's tears, everything seems okay again for Frank and Paula. And the two head down to Eddie's to have a beer. I like that scene, uh there's I, I love he goes he walks in and he goes to kiss her and she turns her head and he goes mm -hmm. to kiss her again and she turns her head again it's just so real <laughs> at eddie's they sit down to some drinks and paula does some lovey-dovey nuzzling into frank's cheek and then asks you'll take me with you won't you well frank won't answer paula asks if she is crowding him well, it's, maybe maybe frank does need this week alone Maybe you do need this week away alone. Maybe we both do. I know what's going on inside of you, Frank. You're just like any other man, only a little more so. You have a feeling of being trapped, hemmed in, and you don't know whether or not you like it. Look, Paula, I'm going to be honest with you. I care too much for you not to be honest with you. I'm as much concerned for your happiness as I am for my own. I know you've had one bad experience, Frank. I know all about it. But you don't know what it can do to two people, Paula. And the woman always gets hurt more than the man. I don't want you to get hurt, darling. More than anything in the world, I don't want you to get hurt. Apparently, Frank has also had some pretty bad experiences in the past. Maybe a divorce? What do you think? I mean, she mentions that he has, he's been hurt before, or he had some bad experience. Do you think it was just a really tight relationship, or do you get the impression maybe Frank's a divorcee? I felt like it was probably like he had kind of left somebody in the lurch at some point and he mentions too that the woman always gets hurt worse than the man i just don't want you to get hurt mm -hmm. is what he says i think and right. uh you know so it, it seems like he's been in this situation before where a woman has expected him she says at one point paula says i thought we'd be married by now and you kind of mm -hmm. get the impression that maybe 
Frank has been in that situation before. Or it could have been a divorce. I didn't really think about it at this, at this uh, period of time. It's kind of hard to tell. I, I think uh, someone pointed out a little trivia online that to some point you see a document with Frank's age and he's 33. So He's not 33. Know, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, the character, I'm sure. I said the character was 33, not, <laughs> not Edmund O'Brien. Anyway, Paula finally agrees to stop nagging Frank. She wants him to go so both can be sure about their relationship, and she won't crowd him anymore. I like I like what she says, though. She says, you know, if it works out, and I think it will, then it's going to be great. But, you know, right. she wants to be sure before she gets even more in, any more involved at this point. Okay. <laughs> oh, guys. We'll, we'll, we'll get into this. Well, anyway, that night, Frank checks into his hotel in San Francisco. And while doing so, he immediately starts checking out every woman that comes near. And just in case you don't pick up on the fact that he's doing this, there is a ridiculous and totally unnecessary slide whistle noise <laughs> to hammer it home. Oh, this happens twice just at the desk alone. Oh, why did someone think to do this for this film? <laughs> I thought maybe I thought it was maybe maybe someone must have edited in on one of these online things just to be funny, ha ha. But no, apparently, from what I can read, that was in the film. I've seen well the two ver the two places I've seen it. It had it on both, and, and and you know it is a pretty heavy movie pretty quickly. So yes. maybe it was they were like, well, we need to add something a little funny in here so that he just doesn't seem like a total creep. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, obviously he's dating a woman seriously, and then he's checking out every single woman that comes along. And I think he, I, don't get me wrong, I think Frank is a pretty good guy. You know, as, as the story goes on, I, I like him. But uh, hmm. okay. it, it, I almost would, I, actually, I strongly suspect that they did it because as they're watching the film, you know, in, when they're doing the preliminaries, and he's like checking out all these women, he just seems like a real creep. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, and then he gets a call from, well, we'll get into that. He gets a call mm -hmm. from yeah, Paula. Well, but, don't jump ahead too far. <laughs> but no, no, but that's it. And and so, you know, for him to go straight from her to straight to picking up on other women would make him seem like a real creep. So it's very understandable if they threw this in just to make it seem more funny than awful. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Just to cover up the fact that it's awful, because frankly, that's what he's going to do. <laughs> that's the point of this trip, I think. <laughs> well, while he's checking in, the desk clerk gives him a message that a uh, call came in about an hour an hour ago from Paula. Uh, more women get oogled at and, and treated to the slide whistle as he uh, heads to his room. That sounds like he's carrying it around with him. <laughs> <laughs> it does. It's like something's attached in his pants or something. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> sure, in his pants. <laughs> Innuendo and out the door. Well, finally in his room, Frank calls Paula. She tells him that the call is strictly business and that a Eugene Phillips will be calling him. He tried to reach him at the office like three times that day, but he wouldn't tell, uh, tell her what he wanted. Well, before finishing the call, Paula tells Frank that, you know, I don't know how to tell this, say this, Frank, but there's nothing you could do that you would ever have to feel guilty about. She gives him carte blanche. She basically just tells him, hey, I'm going to love you no matter what you do there. Yep. Uh, which, of course, this makes 
immediately makes Frank feel guilty for all the <laughs> slide whistling he's been doing on the way up to his room. I think she means it, though. I think she's saying, you know, you're on vacation. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I think she does, too. I, I think it's... I think it's woman games, but okay. Um. Oh, no, no, no. Well, <laughs> okay, I'm taking a pause right there so that I can say, uh, you know, people make arrangements. That's, you know. Yeah, all right. <laughs> well, the whole time all this is going on, there's been a party kind of raging in the room across the hall. One of the party goers pops into Frank's room and asks if he can use the phone as his has been tied up for the last half hour. The man orders up some more booze and some ice, and he invites Frank over to join him. Well, we get one more slide whistle on the hall. I think that's the last one. I'm not sure. Uh, And Frank gets introduced to some of the folks at the party, and while doing so, spots an attractive woman dancing in the room. Frank gets introduced, and uh, she gets Frank to dance with her. Well, he starts dancing, and he slides in kind of close until uh, the Sam, the the guy that's invited him over, asks Frank, uh, hey, hey, my wife's a pretty good dancer, isn't she? Uh, oh, <laughs> and he immediately kind of puts the uh, enough for the ghost, but, you know, <laughs> enough for the Holy Ghost in between them there. <laughs> well, the party decides to move from the hotel, and they are taking Frank with them, and they end up at a very crowded jazz club, uh, the Fisherman, I believe it was mm-hmm, called. The Fisherman. The group is dancing and everything and enjoying the band as Frank is sitting, and Frank is sitting with Sam and his wife Sue. And Sue is being not so subtle and flirting with Frank. And Sam isn't blind and is getting a little perturbed from across the the table there. Uh, Frank actually starts to get repeatedly bumped by the dancers and the people that actually enjoy improvisational jazz. And uh, he heads up to the bar to keep getting slammed in in the back. He leaves Sam and his super drunk Sue behind. At the bar, Sam spots a blonde woman at the end of the bar. What'll it be? Bourbon and water, no ice. Nice, quiet place you got here. Well, we hit the pitch in about an hour, and that's when they really go out of their minds. Who's the blonde? Oh, she's one of the chicks that hangs around here. She's jive crazy. Come again? Oh, you ain't hip, pal. Jive crazy means that she goes for this stuff. Just between you and me, I don't get it either, but I gotta listen to it. They're all connoisseurs, music lovers. Me, I like Guy Lombardo. What's the matter with him? Oh, he's flipped. The music's driving him crazy. Come down, Jack. Oh, don't buy me, man. I'm being in light. Is the blonde alone? Oh, sure. Society. She always comes in alone. Drives a big convertible, wears a mink coat, but knows everybody. But she always comes in alone. Yeah, the bartender knows all. <laughs> I love, I love these movies. Well, this this goes on even today. You go and talk to the bartender. The bartender knows everything you pot you could possibly mm-hmm. need to know, <laughs> especially about the regulars. That's true. Yeah, exactly. Well, thankfully, no slide whistle. But Frank heads down to introduce himself to this uh, lovely lady, Jeannie. I think she's called. Hello. Dig the fisherman. That's really silk, isn't it? Can I buy a drink? Sure thing. Can you blast, Leo? Leo, I left my uh, blast at the other end of the bar. Before the bartender can get it, a stranger quickly switches the glass. The bartender gives Frank his drink, but on tasting it, Frank notices that something isn't right. He has another sip to be sure, but in the end, he just he orders a fresh drink. Well, Jeannie and Frank hit it off, 
And uh, Frank, on seeing Sue trying to spot them, asks if they could go somewhere else. She counters with suggesting that they meet later. She gives him a number, and he speeds out, grabbing a taxi back to his hotel. This is, I love this little interaction. You know, the, the bartender describes her as being jive crazy. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I think he gets actually uh, bumped or leaned over by a guy with a crazy face that yes. might show up later <laughs> in the movie. I think that's, in, that's actually in the clip. If, if it's a little confusing in the clip that I played with him and the bartender, there, there was suddenly a... A guy leans up, like, what's what's up with him? Oh, he's, yeah, he's he's drive crazy. Yeah, he says it's driven him crazy or something. The bartender says I, it's dri- driven him nuts or something like yes. that. <laughs> but I, lo- I love Jeannie. She's, for her uh, brief appearance in this film, she's, <laughs> I love he, you know, he says, hi, what's your name or whatever. And she, or, you know, he says, hi. And she says, easy. And as he leaves again, you know, she's like, oh, here's the address, you know, meet me here. And then he, and he leaves and she says, oh, easy. I've never heard this before, but I think I'm going to start using it. It's like aloha. You say it in greeting and you say it in farewell. I'm just going to start saying easy to everybody. <laughs> easy. <laughs> well, when Frank gets to his room, he makes a beeline for the phone, but then notices a vase of flowers that has been delivered. They are from his totally not crowding girlfriend, Paula. <laughs> The card says "Keep a light, that she will keep a light burning in the window, sweet dreams. Well, Frank tears up Jeannie's number and throws it away. I feel like a bad wife now. If I don't send my husband a flower and notes, you know, flowers and notes every time he leaves, <laughs> then I'm just officially I'm a bad wife. <laughs> I know, Christopher, you think this is crowding. I'm like, oh, she's being sweet, you know, and reminding him that, you know, She's still there, but, you know, well, yeah, well it's I can the, see how you think it was crowding. <laughs> yeah, Frank, you, 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 there's nothing you can do that you need to feel guilty about, but I'm going to remind you every moment that I can that I'm, that I'm your girlfriend. Well, they didn't so. have texting yeah. back then. She had to do something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's exactly. This is, this is the 1950 equivalent of sending a text, yes, to every five minutes. Well, the next morning, Frank wakes up, and he doesn't feel so hot. He orders up some room service, uh, which I believe is booze. I think it must, was it a Bloody Mary or I something, maybe? I it was maybe? Harry the Dog, but for yeah. yeah, I don't know. Well, I was thinking it was like Bloody Mary because maybe that was uh, uh, Tabasco or Worcester sauce or something. Uh, what, what is it that you put in Bloody Marys? I don't remember. Uh, Worcester sauce, celery, vodka, and mixed tomato juice. Right. There was no celery, but there was like a <laughs> bottle of something that the, the, the bellhop kind of like puts a couple drops in or something I and think, then yeah, frank stirs up i think so. he asked him if he wanted like it's not he doesn't call it tums but i think he asked him if he wants a tums hmm i don't remember i don't know bromo yeah anyway uh frank ends up sending this whole thing back yeah he decides he just needs some fresh air he hops a trolley and tours the city a little but he feels so crummy that when he ha- happens to notice a medical building he decides to stop in for a checkup well, everything looks okay at first, but when a toxicology report comes in, the doctors have some bad news. Mr. Bigelow, this is Dr. Schaefer. Hello, doctor. How are you? Sit down, Mr. Bigelow. According to the information you gave Miss Wilson, you're not married, Mr. Bigelow. That's right. Do you have any relatives, family, anyone in San Francisco? No, no one. I don't know a soul in San Francisco. Where is your home? What is this, doctor? Why all the questions? You're a very sick man, Mr. Bigelow. Sick? But you told me I was in good shape. Yes, I know. But my preliminary examination didn't reveal your true condition. 
You sound as if it's pretty serious, Doctor. It's extremely serious. I want you to understand that we wouldn't tell you something like this unless we were absolutely certain. Well, of course, of course. You must steel yourself for a shock, Mr. Bigelow. Well, go on, Doctor. What is it you're trying to tell me? Our tests reveal the presence in your body of a luminous toxic matter. What is that exactly? A poison that attacks the vital organs. Poison? We have no alternative but to tell you this. Your system has already absorbed sufficient toxin to prove fatal. I wish there was something that we could do. What do you mean, wish? You mean there's nothing? There is nothing anyone can do. This is one of the few poisons of its type for which there is no antidote. Well, this is fantastic. This is the most it's ridiculous thing. We don't have very long. What do you mean? A day, possibly a week, two weeks at the outside. It's hard to say exactly. Well, this is impossible. I don't believe it. You've made a mistake. That's it. It could be a mistake, couldn't it? You, you have made a mistake, haven't you? Answer me. Dr. Schaefer is an authority on toxicology. Been no mistake, Mr. Bigelow. Do you realize what you're saying? Well, you're telling me that I'm dead. Do you think you can explain my life away in just a few words? Why, I, I don't even know who you are. Why should I believe you? You must calm yourself, Mr. Bigelow. We want to offer you every assistance that we... Assistance? Who wants your assistance? Who wants anything from you? You're nothing but a couple of phonies. Why, I think you're crazy. That's it. You're crazy. The both of you, you're crazy. Yeah, so Frank has been given a death sentence. This is pretty harsh, the, the delivery yeah, on Yeah, this. just a little bit. You know, brace yourself. Oh, my gosh. You're dying. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> So, so, are you enjoying the city? Right. Good, good. Where are you from? Nice, nice. You're not heading back By there. By the way, but... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, everyone that's going to live next week, step forward. Not f- so <laughs> not fast, Frank. Mr. Bigelow. Um, <laughs> oh, man. Well, Frankie runs out of the office, and he goes and gets a second opinion, uh, which unfortunately is no better than the first. When the doctor finds out that Frank has no idea how he came into contact with the stuff, because he says that someone would have to know how to handle it, this wasn't an accident. This is murder. And while the doctor calls the police, Frank runs out and runs through the streets. Really cool. Apparently this shot through the streets was not, like, officially sanctioned by the city (laughs) of San Francisco. This was just, they just had Edmund O'Brien running through the streets and they filmed it. So all the people he's slamming into and looking confused, yeah, they're real people. They look really genuine. Like, why is this crazy man running through here? Yeah, it's really kind of a pretty good scene. It really kind of gives you the sense of the the panic that poor poor Frank has got to be feeling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exhausted, he finally stops. And after, uh, oh, well... I was going to say, he stops, and then, of course, when it, it, in his head, he's kind of got the inner monologue, and he's replaying what's been said to him, that he's going to die. He's only got a few days to maybe a week on the outside to, to live. That's when, you know, suddenly, oh, here comes a little girl. Yeah, exactly. Oh, here comes a pretty beautiful woman and a wife. Oh, here comes a, a lovely couple. Ah, uh, this is all the things I'm not going to have. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it you know, as as easy as it's it sounds cheesy us talking about it, but it is actually pretty darn gripping. I probably given it a little. I'm making it sound like a little bit of a joke. I think it's a maybe, it's a little shorthand, but I guess it's they felt they needed to 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 do it just so they understand you know Frank's motivation for 
even just a few minutes later. Yeah, if they remade this movie today, he'd be at a bar getting drunk. But yeah. know, in the 50s, he's running through a street and seeing these important Oh, absolutely. Things. There would definitely be there would definitely be dialogue. There would be with another bartender. There would be with somebody, and he would be spilling his heart out. And he's like, I've always, you know, he'd see somebody or he'd see, yep. he'd see the kids. Oh, I never, I always thought I might have kids someday. Yeah, that kind of stuff. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, like I said, this was shorthand, and it's effective. It mm-hmm. is. Well, he decides that he's going to find out who, why he has been poisoned and who has done it. So his first stop is, of course, the jazz club, which unfortunately is closed. Second stop, back at the hotel. He pounds on Sam's door across the hall, but Sam checked out that morning. His uh, room phone starts ringing, and Paula, uh, once again totally not crowding, uh, is calling. <laughs> Uh, Frank doesn't tell Paula what is happening, and when uh, totally not crowding Paula, Paula tells him she could come up to visit, he tells her emphatically, no. He sounds weird, though. I think she says at this point he doesn't sound like himself. I feel like I have to defend right. Paula because you're being so mean about her. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think she really does genuinely care about this guy. She keeps, you know, she's been hanging around expecting him to marry her. Oh, and I, I think she cares weekend. about him. No, I think she cares about him. But she reminds me, did you ever see Wayne's World? No. Oh, you never saw Wayne's World. Well, for all, any listeners that saw Wayne's World, Paula is Stacy. All right. <laughs> is she the creepy internet girlfriend that's like, hey, I didn't talk to you for five seconds, so I'm calling again? Something like that. Yeah, she's the <laughs> she's the creepy ex-girlfriend. They broke up, but she won't accept it. You know, and <laughs> but she, they're still she, like, together. Shows up. Yeah, I, I know, but she. this is how I feel Paula would do be if they... Do you have deeply-seated issues about this, Christopher? I, perhaps I do. You know who Paula is? Paula is the woman that is going to be like, uh, what was the film? Oh, She's me, okay? I admit it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the one that's like, sweetheart, go ahead, do whatever you want, have fun. And then like after 10 minutes, I'm like, oh, crap, that was so stupid. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> oh, I'm thinking, was it Glenn Close in that one film? Oh, I will please. not be ignored. <laughs> I've never seen that one either. But uh, uh, this is Paula's the woman. Paula's the type of woman that she, she, she would make. <laughs> yeah, she'd put your bunny in the pot. No, she wouldn't. That's horrible. <laughs> Where was I? Sorry. <laughs> but th- that was my fault. Well, before Paula hangs up, she tells Frank that uh, she called Mr. Phillips to try and find out what it was that was so urgent. But it turns out that Mr. Phillips died yesterday. Well, this piques Frank's interest. He yells at Paula to give him the, ma- the, the man's office address. Uh, it turns out it's in Los Angeles. Well, Frank grabs a flight and heads to L.A., Frank gets to Philip's office and meets Mr. Halliday. Mr. Halliday claims to know nothing uh, about why Phillips had been calling. Well, Frank inquires about Philip's family. Uh, Halliday admonishes Frank for even suggesting uh, intruding on them at that time. Well, Frank tells him that it's incredibly important, and he'll just use the phone book if he has to. But Halliday ends up giving him the address. Before leaving, Frank asks how Phillips died. Apparently it was suicide. He leapt from his apartment balcony. This seems like it's it's the moment where he really starts to believe, okay, this really is murder. You know, because he, he's like done talking to Paula and then she says, you know, oh yeah, he died yesterday. And all of a sudden he's like, wait a minute. And then he's back in the conversation again. Um, it, it seems like up until now he's kind of like, oh, you know, it could be another thing. But as soon as he hears that somebody else that's been trying to reach him is dead, then he really gra- grips onto this, okay, this really is murder. 
Well, I think maybe he knew it was murder, but now he knows that now it's more than just, you know, some random act yeah. or something. <laughs> there might be something more to this. Yeah. The plot thickened, yeah. I guess, as they say. At the Phillips apartment, Mrs. Phillips and her brother-in-law, Stanley, are expecting him. Halliday phoned ahead. Neither know why Phillips called, or and neither of them had ever even heard of Frank Bigelow. Stanley tells Frank that Phillips had been arrested a couple of days ago. Apparently, he sold some iridium that turned out to be stolen. Uh, he was on the hook for theft. Uh, the police figure suicide was better than prison for for Mr. Uh, Mr. Phillips. Well, checking into a hotel there in L.A., Frank gets a call from Paula. Frank still won't tell her what is going on, but does tell her that he misses her, which makes her feel better. And as a side note, Paula mentions that she found the name of Eugene Phillips in their files. Frank notarized a bill of sale for a George Reynolds to Eugene Phillips for a shipment of iridium. I'm curious, did you look up iridium, what it is? Uh, they actually even describe it in the film. It is some sort of uh, metal. I, th- I thought it might play into the poison at some point, because I thought it- iridium sounds like something that would be radioactive, but it's... I didn't look it up, no. <laughs> let's see. Uh, hold on. I'm, let's see. I'm, I'm curious. I'm going to look up luminous toxin, because... Uh, at the, that... Supposedly, that's a legitimate thing. Yeah, that list at the end, or that note at the end. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if it has iridium in it at all. Yeah, iridium is apparently, it's a, um, it's like a, it's a tris- transition metal of the platinum group. Okay. Atomic number 77. It's, yes. It's generally credited with being the second densest element. Oh, interesting. So, okay. Hmm, apparently it has some uses. I'm not sure what. I'm not, sa- not going to go that no, deep. No, in satellites. <laughs> but I'm wondering in 1950 what they would have used it for because I don't think they yeah, had very, It was a yet. very interesting thing to work up why you know it, it wasn't diamonds it's not yeah. gold bullion <laughs> why you know, this thing it's iridium exactly like, what the heck maybe it's just the m maybe it's like me because i'm thinking oh that must be radioactive that's like the atomic bomb thing mm-hmm. you know uh, that the 50s was ripe with atomic eums of you know yeah, <laughs> radioactive eums <laughs> oh after hearing this news about the fact that you know, apparently there, there was this this bill of sale this thing that he notarized frank returns to mrs phillips apartment he asks about George Reynolds. She knows the name of the man, uh, and that was the man that Eugene claimed sold him the iridium. The thing is, Reynolds disappeared. Eugene couldn't find the bill of sale. If he had, then Reynolds would be the one in trouble. Eugene was convinced that Reynolds was the one who stole the bill of sale. Frank, ever suspicious, wonders to Mrs. Phillips why she wasn't curious as to how Frank knew there was a bill of sale. And without waiting for an answer, Frank leaves. I thought that was interesting. You know, this was there's a few moments where it's kind of they were sort of forcing the suspicion on some people because I I don't know why necessarily she would immediately why would her first question be oh how do you know right. or anything well I, and, just, and two he never mentions what he is I don't think he tells anybody yeah, that he's no he doesn't. No, he doesn't, but that's not exactly... You come and say, oh, but he, there was a bill of sale, and I have all this information, well, how do you or know whatever. there was a bill? Yeah, that's <laughs> a little Yeah, strange. why would she go, how do you? How would you know? That doesn't, that doesn't seem to me like that would be the first question. Her reaction seems to be a legitimate reaction. Mm-hmm. The, her, But if 
if there was a bill of sale, then you know, he obviously he'd be off the hook. I mean, that's where she went. Mm-hmm. That made sense to me. So this line from Frank was just kind of like this was the plot trying to push itself along a little bit. Yeah, this is, and I think this is the one truly awkward. Well, you know, this is one of only a couple really awkward moments where yes, you kind of yes. go, "What is the wait? What does that have to do with it?" Well, what's interesting is because they do this actually two or three times in the film, and I'll say at least maybe two of the three times it's a red herring mm. but so it's kind of like oh but which one <laughs> which one is really aimed at us trying to get us to like oh throw our suspicion one way or another mm-hmm. and which is just which is the truth and you know yeah so it's done for a reason and it's done but it's heavy-handed yeah a little bit yeah, a little clumsy maybe well, Frank uh, goes to Philip's office again and questions the secretary about Philip's phone call. Fair warning, this is going to be a long clip because it's kind of a lot that goes on. It's a little hard to explain, so I'm just going to let them do it. <laughs> Mr. Holliday isn't in. He should be back shortly. I think you're the one who can help me, Miss Foster. Mr. Phillips tried to reach someone else before he called me yesterday, didn't he? Why don't you ask Mr. Holliday? Obviously, Mr. Holliday wasn't here yesterday, or he wouldn't have had to learn from you that Phillips called me. And you're the logical person to know who else Phillips called. I don't believe that's any of your business, Mr. Piccolo. Don't think you're revealing anything confidential, Miss Foster. I know that he tried to reach somebody else. Mrs. Phillips told me. You're bluffing, Mr. Piccolo. I don't know what you're after, but you're trying to trick me. Mrs. Phillips didn't tell you a thing. How do you know that? Mrs. Phillips knows nothing about it. She doesn't? Well, why wouldn't she? Wait a minute. I was talking about George Reynolds. Who did you think I meant? Just who is it that Mrs. Phillips doesn't know about? I told you before, that's none of your business. All right, young lady, I'm going to give it to you straight. Phillips was murdered. Murdered? I don't believe you. He told me because he needed me to clear him. Phillips was innocent. Innocent men don't have to jump out of windows. Murdered? Just who are you trying to protect, Miss Foster? Why are you so afraid to tell the truth? I'm not protecting anybody. I haven't any more to say. All right, young listen to me. This thing is going to explode wide open. You've got nothing to hide. You better start talking. Or maybe you are mixed up. No! Well, then, come on. Mr. Phillips called Marla Rakubian. He went to see her yesterday morning. Who's Marla Rakubian? She's a model. She and Mr. Phillips used to be quite friendly, but he hadn't been seeing her for quite some time. Come on. The last couple of months, he'd been trying to locate her and finally learn where she lived yesterday morning. When he returned from seeing her, he was terribly upset and excited. That's when he had me put in the calls for you. When he couldn't reach you, he went home. The last time I saw him alive. Give me Marla Rakubian's address. I... I don't think Mr. Phillips realized I, I was aware of his friendship with Marla Rakubian. And out of respect for him, I never intended to tell anybody. I had no idea that she had anything to do with the trouble he was in. I admire your discretion, Miss Foster. You know, you must be pretty friendly with Stanley, Miss Foster. He knew how desperately his brother tried to reach me yesterday, and he wasn't even here at the time. And now you seem to know all about what happened in Mrs. Phillips' apartment. So now that Frank has another name and an address, he goes and busts in on Marla Rakubian's apartment. Uh, interesting name, too, to throw out. Who comes up with the name Rakubian? No idea. Yes, Ir- Iridium and Rakubian. <laughs> well, Marla is all packed up to leave town. Frank questions her about Reynolds. She claims to not even know him, but Frank finds a framed picture of him in her bag. Frank is accusing that Reynolds of pushing Phillips off the balcony and then heading to San Francisco to try to deal with with himself or deal with him because uh, those two, Reynolds and Frank, were the only two to know about this bill of sale. While he does this, Marla manages to get get her hand on a gun 
She manages to get the upper hand for a moment, but Frank turns the tables and grabs the gun. Marla claims to not have seen Reynolds for months, but Frank doesn't buy it. He takes the picture from the frame and leaves Marla stewing. And she does a good stew. (laughs) I mean, you could almost see the fumes coming off her. Frank manages to trace the photo to the studio where it was taken. I guess there must have been, not shown on camera, but I guess there must have been a stamp on the back or something like that. Yeah. Uh, He bribes the owners to look up the address of Mr. Reynolds. They have a little trouble finding it as they have no record of that photo under the name of George Reynolds, but instead Raymond Rakubian. Frank leaves the studio and is greeted with a hail of gunfire coming from a nearby factory. He manages to make his way across to the factory, uh, which means this is the worst sniper ever. uh, (laughs) Because there is actually no point that Frank is actually undercover. Yeah. (laughs) Every one of those shots should have hit him. Yeah, if we want to get real technical, the shots are coming from behind him, and he's mm -hmm. running forward. Um, Yeah, yeah, there's a little, this is a little camp there. Yeah, a little bit. I also wonder what kind of photo studio sets themselves up in like the middle of this it looks like there's nothing else around them other than like abandoned factories or something unfortunately positioned ones that's yes. where <laughs> well he doesn't find the shooter he, he just finds some empty bullet casings and, and a matchbook uh, pigeons of course <laughs> uh, he just finds some empty bullet casings and a matchbook from the fisherman Frank pays another visit to Halliday. He shows him the photo, but Halliday claims to not recognize him under either name. Frank also asks Halliday, uh, who is the controller of the office, which I guess means manager. I've never really heard the name controller of an office, but I think it's manager. Uh, Why this guy didn't know about this bill of sale. Well, Halliday said that that was before he started working with the company, and Phillips kept that information in his personal papers. And then Halliday effectively throws Frank out of the office. There's the kind of good little burn at the end of this, too, where he, you know, he says, get out before I throw you out. And then Frank walks up to him and goes, you scare me. <laughs> like, just real oh. deadpan. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. You really frighten me or whatever. Yeah. Frank returns to his hotel and is jumped by a bunch of guys with guns. And if I had a nickel. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Every darn hotel I go to. <laughs> yep. Well, Paula happens to call again. Or yeah, she has some office issues. There was one of the clients was complaining that Frank hadn't done something, and there was this going on. Well, Frank tells her to just forget it. Tell them to go find another accountant and to draw the money they have in the bank and to go buy something nice for herself. I mean, maybe that new coat that she's been wanting. Paula assumes that he is drunk. I should re- I should mention that you know he's doing this all with a gun to his head <laughs> uh, with these guys around. Uh, that's kind of important. Sorry. <laughs> Paula assumes that he's drunk. One of the goons tells him to keep it short. Frank tells Paula that he is sorry he left her and that he never realized how much he loved her. They hang up on Paula and lead Frank out. They take him to meet Majak, the dealer who bought the iridium. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> There's about 20 minutes, minutes left to this film, and this is kind of like when all the exciting stuff kind of mm-hmm. starts to happen. So that's where I, I don't want to spoil anything else because this is actually the last 20 minutes is probably my favorite uh, <laughs> portion of the film. It really is. 
because it does get exciting. There's some really great moments. I don't have all of it in synopsis, but with his meeting with Majak, it's that great 1950s film noir. He's just that great kind of calm and collect, know-everything villain. Uh, there's that moment when um, when Chester's like, ah, yeah, you know, the Chester, the lead goon, you're scared. I'm going to get you. And the guy's like, he's not scared. Look at his eyes. Yeah, I love you that know? part. That's such a good part. <laughs> and the other one... Uh, Majax, and they're walking through the hall of his apartment there or his home, and uh, Frank makes a dive for the door, and, and just real calmly, Majax says, "That's a closet, Mister Bigelow." Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> it was awesome. I, I, uh, I almost feel like it would have been great if Majax was like a more, if he was in more of this, because they those two against each mm. other seem like, yeah, you know, we're already most of the way through the movie, and you're just now seeing him. And it would be so, it it would be so much, it would be very interesting to see them interacting a lot more because they're both those kind of steady guys. Yeah, he was just just a really great villain. I mean, it's just that typical sort of 1950s. Again, this is where I was saying that, you know, Frank to me kind of felt like, or Edmund O'Brien felt like a sort of stand-in for Humphrey Bogart. Mm -hmm. Well, this guy was kind of the stand-in for uh, Sidney Greenstreet. This is like, I I kept thinking of like the the Maltese Falcon. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, I thought of that a lot too. Yeah, uh, you almost just needed Peter Peter Lorre to come in. You're just waiting for him, you know? (laughs) (laughs) There was a lot about this film that I really liked. I just wish there was a few moments where like we've discussed that would just kind of had a little bit of a heavy hand with some of the script and then the while they tried to force the comedy in the early portion of the film is just is beyond me. I, I just I don't understand mm-hmm. it. Um, what were we talking about before? We're going to talk about oh that was pretty much it. It was what I was talking about <laughs> Edmund and 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 the Humphrey Bogart Bogart thing. Um, so there's a lot of me that just kind of wants to say that this wanted to be what would be considered a. a "Quote unquote better film, the more classic film, mm-hmm. like the Maltese Falcon or something like that." Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of me that just says, "No, this is a really good animal all its own." Mm-hmm. So I'm, it's really kind of a tough one for me to fall on when I when it comes to us finally doing our ratings. It's I'm, I'm I'll admit to being a little torn on my rating. Well, I def- I'm hoping maybe some insight from you will. <laughs> well, I, I do. I think the story has more potential than the end result showed. Um, mm-hmm. you know, again, you know, having this guy walk into a police station and say, I want to report a murder, and they say, who's, who's been killed? And they, he says, me. You know, when I was watching that, I thought, oh, no, you know, is he a ghost? Is this like a, we're, we're doing this hypothetical thing, if dead people could talk, what's going on? But no, he actually is dying and going and figuring out who's done this to him. So as a story goes, I mean, it's a phenomenal concept. Is You know, the person that came oh, up with the story. Brilliant. Yeah, br- totally brilliant. Um, as far as, you know, the execution, it dragged a bit in places. Um, there were, you know, you used the phrase red herring and, you know, we, and that comes back later on without giving too much away, you know, <laughs> there's quite a bit of misleading going on in this movie. Um, yes. and, and it, I kind of thought about that at one point while I was watching it and thought if it was today, they wouldn't have this much kind of side stuff going on. He wouldn't have gone to a party with people he didn't know that didn't show up again in the movie. You know, he would have gone with the main bad guys, whoever they were, you know, but right. he wouldn't have known they were bad guys. So they, there's a lot more involved in it than is required for the story. And it makes it, um, it, it makes it misleading 
but yeah. the, the concept is solid. This idea of a guy who knows he's dying and has, you know, one or two days to find out what's going on, actually trying to do it. You know, it's very, what's the word I want? Motivating. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. very motivating. <laughs> yeah, it was real interesting how they played with characters because there was, there was some really good and bad ways of, uh, they, they kind of dealt with it. One, yeah, all these characters that show up in the beginning and then disappear and never see again. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really interesting. But then there's other characters that show back up and you're like, whoa, why is she? Like, isn't it like the, the he goes to see uh, Stanley, Eugene Phillips' brother. Mm-hmm. And he goes to his apartment and, like, the secretary from Phillips' office is there. Mm-hmm. And you're like... Why is she there? Well, how did he, we? Yeah. How did they connect? Where, where did these two connect? Why is she? Yeah. Apparently, they're a couple. And they're like, well, well, wait, when did that he happen? Mentions it early on. He says, "You're with Stanley, aren't you?" But at the time, you don't know who Stanley. You don't really get who Stanley is. And in fact, Stanley is. Oh, I, don't, I don't want to give anything away. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, they, again, let's just say between the secretary, the brother, the wife, the gangster. Um, I mean, there's, and then, uh, the gangster's nephew and the, the, there's so many potential suspects in this. I mean, there are just like literally like half a dozen probably people that all could have done what he's trying to figure out here. And, uh, you know, only one of them did it. So, <laughs> so there's a lot of misleading. Again, that's the best word I can think of in it for it is just there's a lot of misleading. And they mention it, you know, you get, okay, so Stan, so the secretary is seeing Stanley, but then, but it's so quick in passing that you kind of miss it. Yeah, see, I must have missed it because suddenly she's just in this place. I'm like, wait, he saw, wait, how, how who? Yeah, where did this come connection come in? And yeah, so I I completely missed it, or or, or I just I didn't understand how do you figure that out? Right. I mean, there's a few yeah. leaps where it just seems like okay, we'll just roll with it. I'm um, sure we'll go, you know keep the plot moving. Let's go. There's so many directions that it could have gone in that mm-hmm. you know it's hard to track them all when you're watching it the first or second time. Yeah, and then like you were saying too, some interesting like genie. <laughs> Were you she, waiting for Jeannie to show back I up? I was. I kept waiting yeah. for her to come back in and say, easy. You know, and she never does. <laughs> I'm like, where'd she go? She she could have been interesting, you know. But she's just a girl that is a jazz crazy or jive crazy, I guess they call Jive crazy. Jive that's crazy. right. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's, a, this, you know, again, the story, it's not a, it's it's not modern in the telling. Uh, they They make it a lot more complex than movies do now yeah and maybe a little more complex than it needed to be and yes maybe I think, just a little I just think a, it's so. a little complicated well yeah. the, the necessary yes um I, it doesn't really detract but it definitely distracts it makes it a little tough to follow i think it probably a lot of the story i caught more the second time mm-hmm. i watched the film me as well uh uh, because the first time I just I'm like I okay great he did it um, I don't know how that <laughs> happened I was I was a little confused the second time I watched it I was able to kind of glean a little bit more from it mm-hmm. from what was going I was able to follow a little bit better yeah well and and you know back to the point of the secretary I was confused because the first time I watched it I thought he was saying that she was seeing the office manager 
But right. that wasn't him. It was the other no. guy. So get, yeah, get your scorecard. Exactly. <laughs> Just make make a list. Put little check marks next to the people that are dating. Yeah, you, you need like a you need a flow chart. Is yes. what you need for this film. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I am going to put you on the spotlight. What kind of rating would you give this? Uh, <laughs> that, it's hard. Let me think a minute. I've got I've got a rating up in front of me from another venue, and so let me think for a minute here. Um, you know, the, the story of this character, as I used the word earlier, gripping, it really is. I mean, you know, this guy is in the throes of death looking for his own murderer, you know. And so this, the story is, I think, again, I think the potential is a lot greater than the execution. But that doesn't mean that it's a badly done. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are a couple of scenes in it that make no sense to me. There's that long, like, two-minute thing where they first get to the fisherman, and it's just the band playing for two or three minutes. And that's mm-hmm. all it is, is just the band playing, and you're kind of going, why is, you know, I mean, was that somebody's buddy? Was that a band that was famous at that time? It's It doesn't... Apparently not. <laughs> it, I mean, there were they were musicians, yeah. but they weren't, like, part of the same band. It wasn't like they were highlighting the actual San Francisco's famous The Fisherman. Right. Uh, so it's kind of random. Yeah, and they even had the, the, the audience that was like, oh, swing it, fishermen, swing it. And I'm like, okay, but no. They're, yeah. they're just guys that they hired for the film that weren't even really playing at the time. I mean, they did the whole – where they played the put in the music after the fact. And so it's like, yeah. all right. <laughs> and so there are a couple of scenes like that where you kind of go, okay, wait. Oh, okay. So a lot of the movie doesn't have to do with the story. Right. A lot, like big chunks of the movie don't have anything to do with the climax or the resolution of the story. So Mm -hmm. from that standpoint, it's worth watching. It's absolutely worth watching. It's worth watching. If you're listening to this, you should watch it just so that you see the end, so that you know who did it, who done it. Absolutely. Um, but as even if you just skip to the end, because I'm telling yeah, you, the last you 20 minutes is awesome. <laughs> yeah, go leave like the last 30 minutes or so. And um, but it, I hate to give it a low rating because I don't think that it's badly done. But compared to some others that I've seen, I'm going to go with the three. Um, okay, I, I feel so much better. Now. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely doesn't merit a two. It's much better than that. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. And, and there, you could argue for a four in some places, but then to me, I think there are enough things that pull away from it. I mean, there's some movies out there that you watch them and you're just like, oh, hands down, that's a five. In this one, the fact that we're struggling to find the right rating for it, I think, is an indicator too. So, okay, uh, I, I would give it. I would happily give it a three. I would generously give it a three and a half. All right, that's good because that, that's where I was thinking of falling was that the, the three and a half mark mm-hmm. just because I feel like it doesn't deserve that four as much as I like – like we were just saying, as much as I like the premise, mm-hmm. as much as I like so much that happens in this film mm-hmm. – Overall, you put you put it really well. Thank you very much. That the you know the the premise doesn't is, is better than the execution. Yeah. I mean that is a perfect example. So I can't give it that really high rating that I would really like to. I think if this would kind of be honed a little bit more, it would definitely be a five kind of movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just felt like oh, but I've given other movies that were not this good. A three. So where do I fall? So yeah, a three and a half just to give that little notch into the, yeah, you should really, I mean, like you said, 
recommended viewing, but given it that last half just kind of makes it feel like for me, you mean that you know that I mean <laughs> that <laughs> well, I actually mean it not, is a recommended viewing. Yeah, it's too confusing to be a four. There's too yeah. much yeah. confusion. Too going much on. going on. Yeah, a lot going on. So you know, and, and I think the story potentially is really strong five, but as the execution goes, it just gets too confusing. There are too many red herrings. And and in the end, you know, the actual interactions with each person, you know, classic example, Game of Thrones, you know, if you only read one person's story out of those books, it'd be like a hundred page long book, you know, and it's the same kind of thing with this. You have so many people and so many different things going on that each interaction with a person is only five or 10 minutes. So, um, that in a lot of it just doesn't have to do with the resolution. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, so I'm happy with the three. I think if you want to go with a three and a five, 3.5, that gives me a little more comfort. <laughs> I think, <laughs> yep. you know, I'm kind of like, mm, yeah, I think I'll, I think I'm happy with the three just due to some of the, some of the failings of the execution. Okay. I'm going to stick with the three and a half. I'm, I'm, I just, I feel more comfortable with a three and a half, but uh, mm-hmm. no, I completely understand. Like I said, I was just, I really kind of was really beating myself up over. Yeah, over not giving it I don't want to go too low. I don't want to give it too high. There are some things about it that I think are great. I love um, the lady that plays Paula, Pamela Britton. She's not that classic screen beauty. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you can kind of – and so I really like that they cast her because she's not a Virginia Mayo. You know, she's not just this glamorous, gorgeous woman, but, you know – you can kind of see why maybe he's checking out other. Oh, sorry. I'm going to get back into reviewing it. <laughs> but there are a lot of things I like about it. I think Edmund um, O'Brien is a great cast. Obviously, we've already talked about Majak. So, um, but yeah, I think, you know, if it, if it were cleaner, tidier, made a little bit more sense. And if maybe even if they had stretched that potential a little bit further than they did, um, mm-hmm. you know, they kind of, the, the, the name of the movie is a punchline. And that's, uh, oh, it kind of digs a little bit. You know, I'm like, mm, oh, yeah. I, I hate it when they make the, the name of a movie a punchline. It's like, oh. You know? <laughs> so, again, there I think there are things that they could have done better. Um, but there's also some really positive things about it. I'm repeating yeah, myself absolutely. at this point. <laughs> yeah. You know, you mentioned the woman that played Paula. She seemed kind of familiar, familiar to me. She was the one person in this film that was like, okay, I've seen her before. And I looked through her filmography. Uh, she played the nosy neighbor in My Favorite Martian. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's where I know her from. <laughs> so if anyone, any My Favorite Martian fans out there, you'll know who we're talking about. There you go. Well, I think that is going to do it. I think we're, we've reached the point that if we keep talking, we're just going to start repeating ourselves <laughs> and finding different ways to say the same thing. Uh, I want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, definitely go out and watch DOA. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and 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 tell us what you think about it. Uh, certainly, uh, join our Facebook group and comment, or send us an email at orphanentertainment at gmail dot com because I would really like to hear some other uh, people's thoughts on this film. We both would. So that's going to do it, Lydia. Thank you very much. Awesome as always. This has been a really fun and great episode. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And we will talk to you guys in another month with another fun film. Until then, thank you and goodbye. Bye.